Kiorokoto Katoa, and welcome to this edition of Asia Insight from the Asia New Zealand Foundation to Fito Tohono in Wellington. I'm Graham Acton. Professor James Lawrenson is Director of the Australia-China Relations Institute based at the University of Technology in Sydney. He's one of Australia's leading China watchers with an emphasis on economic performance and development in the country. He was in New Zealand recently for a speaking engagement dubbed China's Economy in 2022. I sat down with James to discuss what's currently happening inside the Chinese economy and how export-dependent New Zealand should navigate what could be a bumpy period ahead. And I began by asking him to describe how the Chinese economy actually works. When we're talking about the strategic sectors of the economy, such as you know infrastructure, telecommunications, electricity, I mean, those are really deliberately dominated by the state sector. Absolutely fair to say it's state-controlled. Uh, but when you go into manufacturing in the services sector, which, by the way, is now the largest proportion of the Chinese economy, that is incredibly market-orientated and competitive. So if you look at measures of industry concentration, for example, in China, they're actually lower than they are in the United States. So you know, you can tell a story about China being highly marketized and highly straight controlled. Both are true, and you've got to hold those both of those ideas in your mind at the same time. So, so from a, it was at one time, um, I think I'm safe in saying, a, a central planning thing where they have they have a degree of from the centre. We're doing it in five year blocks. But now it, there's a, I understand, a kind of a regionalisation of the local government takes quite a lot more power and those local governments kind of compete with each other in economic performance. Is that correct? So I think during the 1980s and 1990s, that was very much the story. In fact, decentralisation was really one of the um, the fundamental reforms that Deng Xiaoping unleashed back in the late 1970s. What Xi Jinping has been trying to do is, in fact, take power more back towards the centre, uh, because otherwise you have these competing pl- power blocks around the country. And in fact, some, sometimes that decentralisation can actually stymie the reforms that the centre wants to put in place. So under Xi, we've been seeing a re-centralisation. Now, whether that's a good or bad thing is up for debate. I mean, I guess, you know, you do get rid of these provincial power bases, but if the centre is acting economic policies that are not always... Um, Boosting economic efficiency, for example, um, that can sometimes backfire. And I think we're seeing a bit of that in the last few years. Does the Chinese administration think that communism helps in its economic development or is it a sort of ideology over economics kind of argument? So this is a great question. So historically, one of the things someone like me has always been able to say is that at least when it comes to the economy, the Chinese Communist Party, for all its ideology, is fundamentally pragmatic. And, you know, throughout the 80s, 90s and into the 2000s, I think you can say that. But I do think this is one area where we are seeing some significant change now, particularly over the last few years under Xi Jinping. And I think COVID, China's dynamic COVID zero policies are, are probably our best example of this. There's really no way you can explain what China is doing now in terms of tr- still trying to keep case numbers as close to zero without reaching for an explanation grounded in ideology and politics, um, economic pragmatism has well and truly been trumped. Uh, so yeah, that, that has been a, a genuine significant shift. Looking across its its economic development trajectory, does it does it see communism as a as a as a way to become better than the West now? 
Does it still think that? Yeah, so it, it would. It does. It mm. does. I mean, it thinks its system um, in its entirety is superior to the Western system. And I think that's, again, that's also that, that belief has taken on increased importance in recent years. Partly that's a reflection of their assessment of where the West is headed. I mean, and, and to be fair, if, you, if you're looking at the United States and Europe, particularly during 2020, during the COVID period, you wouldn't exactly be particularly impressed uh, by, by the competition. You might feel quite quite reassured by your system. And also, as we're entering into a more geopolitically contested space, I do think that Beijing considers its system with um, with a strong political leadership as being quite useful um, compared with a more fragmented um, system in the West where, where different groups of society are arguing amongst themselves rather than uniting uh, to form a, you know, a, a common front against external threats. China has a, as I understand it, a, a, one of the major problems with China at the moment. I, I mean, the, the, the COVID policy is holding the economy back. There's also a major problem with debt at the moment, and in particular mortgage debt and people owning mortgages for houses that aren't being built. And so that's had quite a lot of a lot of running in the media. Is that actually a problem that's going to be ongoing, or can the government just step into that and say, okay, we're going to pour money into this, we're going to sort out that problem? So the government can step in to head off a crisis. So one thing I always say about China's debt problem is it is absolutely real. I mean, let's be clear, China's debt stocks now are 290% of GDP, that's 20 percentage points, uh, more than in the United States, despite the fact that person incomes in China are less than one third of those in the United States. So it's a genuine problem. But it's not a problem that takes the form of a bubble that pops, um, like we saw in the global financial crisis, or indeed in the Asian financial crisis back in the late 1990s as well. Um, one reason for that, there's, there's plenty of reasons for that, but one reason is that the overwhelming majority of that debt is domestic debt, and it's being channeled mostly through uh, state banks. So the Chinese government is entirely capable of restoring liquidity and confidence in that system. But of course, this, the fact still remains, if you've had all those loans poured into unoccupied apartment buildings or partially completed apartment buildings that have now stalled, well, plainly, that's not a positive for economic growth. So the impact of China's debt problem in my books is it has the effect of grinding down China's rate rate of growth over time rather than in the form of a, of a bubble that pops. Where, where do Chinese people put their money if they don't put it into property? What, what can they do? Yeah, well, that's that's a, a classic problem facing the Chinese households. And, and as you've hinted at, historically, property has been um, the major asset class for them to invest in. Uh, look, the other big one, of course, is, is savings deposits in the state, state banking system. There's also some exposure to a, a share market. China's share market now is not insignificant. And then you have efforts to uh, diversify internationally, uh, which... You know, is unsurprising in a sense, but it has been made more difficult over the last five years uh, because of capital controls imposed by Beijing. So technically, legally, an individual Chinese citizen is only allowed to transfer fifty thousand US dollars overseas in a given year. So that certainly acts to, to gum up the system and prevent a free flow of capital outflows. Are the Chinese are Chinese worried about the Chinese administration anyway? Worried about so-called non-productive investment, like housing, which is you know, non-productive investment. It's not putting money into things that are being made. Is that a major concern within the economic system in China? 
It is indeed. And, and of course, this is why we have actually seen some efforts to cut down on the continued building of houses that no one is is living in. Um, and in particular, we've seen an emphasis in Beijing on trying to replace that sort of investment with investment in what they would consider to be more productive, particularly in these contested geopolitical times, such as high tech, um, high tech manufacturing. So that, that's the that's the goal of the Chinese government. Now, putting that into practice isn't always the same as having the goal. You can have an objective but um, delivering uh, that, that is something else. Can we just talk about the 20th Congress? Sure. What, did, what did you make of the 20th Congress? Oh, look, in econom- I'll stay away from the elite politics. That's not my expertise. But um, on the economic front, I, I don't think it brought a lot of good news. As we know, Xi Jinping has been returned for a third term. Uh, most of the people in the uh, Politburo Standing Committee are his good mates, um, very few of them, I think, have an obvious record of economic market-orientated economic reform. So there wasn't a lot to be positive about. And I think you saw that in the international market reaction. So immediately after Xi Jinping walked out on the stage, uh, markets in Hong Kong and those with exposure to China did did lose value. And so I think that sends a signal that international investors, uh, or, or their evaluation of the outcome of the Congress. So is, uh, are they signalling me that they are worried that he is tuning as we were talking before about ideology over economics, he was turning more to the ideology rather than the economics. Right? Yeah, I think that's a fair yeah. assessment. Um, and there is just precious little evidence that Xi Jinping, particularly over the last five years, is delivering on a meaningful program of market-orientated economic reform that would boost efficiency in the Chinese economy. So, you know, the Chinese economy can, can continue the what it's been doing for the last five years, extremely high rates of investment, Not much happening on the domestic consumption front, which is ultimately where the action needs to be if China's growth is to come become sustainable, and it'll you know limp along with probably lower than five percent growth. It can do that for a while longer, but that's really not what international investors were looking for. It's not what the Chinese economy is capable of as well. It's quite capable of delivering higher rates of growth than it currently is now. So, what sort of things could he be doing that he's not doing? The the key thing in China to deliver sustainable growth is to boost domestic consumption rather than the traditional growth drivers, which have been um, exports and domestic investment. Now, this is not remotely a new story. There are quotes from the Chinese Premier um, Wen Jiabao back in 2007 saying precisely that. Uh, Just a few years ago, we had Xi Jinping himself saying uh, he was announcing this new, you may have heard of this new dual circulation strategy, in a nutshell, boosting domestic consumption. So everyone's saying the right thing, but in terms of actually putting in place policies that allow that to happen. We've seen precious little. Ultimately, a greater proportion of the Chinese economic pie has to be put back in the hands of Chinese households um, rather than captured by the government and the corporate sector. Until households have got the income, um, they're not going to be able to increase their consumption. Domestic household consumption in China right now is at about 38% of GDP. In most countries, New Zealand, Australia, um, United States, it's closer to 70%. So there's a massive difference there. Uh, What could the Chinese government do? It could put in place uh, tax reform strategies that redistribute income from corporates to the household. It it could tackle income inequality because this is another big problem in the Chinese economy. You have extremely wealthy households, but they're the 
proportion of their income that they're spending is not as great as lower income households. So income redistribution within the Chinese household sector would help as well. Is there still an issue with the state-owned enterprises that are inefficient and zombie companies? In a yeah, way? absolutely. So when whether you look at um, return on assets, profitability, all of these sorts of measures, state-owned enterprises lag well behind, less than half. They're recording less than half of the rate of, of privately owned enterprises. Now, Xi Jinping might see that as acceptable, because those because he has more control over those state-owned enterprises, um, they add to what he might consider to be stability um, rather than growth, and that might be a trade-off he's willing to make. Your talk today dubbed the end of the miracle or another bump in the road. I would suspect you think it's a bump in the road? Uh, no. I, I think would, it's the end of the miracle. Uh, I, I'll, I'll come down in the middle. <laughs> Pose it as a dichotomy and then, in fact, come down the middle. So, look, just to give you some background. So, for the last – I've been studying the Chinese economy for 25 years. I have consistently been bullish during – almost that entirety, but I've never been more pessimistic than I am about the state of the Chinese economy than I am right now. Um, in the short term, that reflects the reality of dynamic COVID zero policies and the fact that there's very little prospect of those being relaxed in the next six months. Chinese household consumption, not surprisingly, in, vi- in this environment has collapsed, and that then connects to that longer-term problem that we were talking about before, In th- that a key economic reform that needs to be put in place in China is that boosting of household consumption. Well, right now, we're seeing the exact opposite taking place. The reason why I wouldn't write off the Chinese economic miracle in entirety is that you certainly can still point to bright spots in the Chinese economy that could materialise over time. Let, let me just give you one example. When it comes to renewables and green tech, China is leading the world in that field. So this is an industry of the future. So that's clearly a, a bright spot on the horizon. So, And also, you know, again, there is just the fundamental fact that per-person incomes in China are still less than one-third of those in the United States. So just that catch-up potential is still very real and apparent. Now, it does require appropriate policies to put in place to realise that potential, but that's not what we're seeing right now. It seems to me that the the Chinese economy often appears to be way stronger than it is. You know, it's strong because it's got a lot of people in it and and that consumption power is is quite strong. But the actual economic power of the economy is not that large. So I I think you make an important point there that some people – there is this line, for example, that no economy with a – that has a state sector as dominant as China has reached high income levels Previously, debt levels are higher than other countries, and so that's another reason to, to strike it off off the list. You know, it, it won't reach high income levels, but the fact that it is an economy of 1.4 billion people across 31 provinces means that China is essentially a sample of one. What, what I mean by that is even without international competition, for example, Australia and New Zealand, international competition is fundamental to delivering efficiency in our economies because our domestic economies are quite small. But China, on the other hand, even without intense international competition, can still have intense competition domestically because of the scale of its economy. So the Chinese economy uh, can 
achieve things that other um, economies may not. Does that mean it's a economic colossus? Well, uh, it's it's some areas. I mean, for example, if you look at China's share of uh, manufactured goods exports, global manufactured goods exports, it's um, it's still climbing. So, in other words, it, you know, it's, its competitiveness globally is is still very impressive. But in many areas of, particularly in high tech areas, it still lags a long way behind the international frontier, and that's exactly what we're seeing now. Many of your listeners might have um, heard of the uh, the chip controls, the semiconductor controls that the Biden administration put in place. Um, I mean, they are really going to hit China's um, ambitions around artificial intelligence, for example. It's going to hit them hard. Just talking there about uh, Australia and, and New Zealand, um, Australia seems to have come through the worst of its little spat with China. Uh, it's, there's still some um, sanctions and things in place, but what's your view of how things are going here at the end of 2022? We've certainly come through the spat in terms of the economic impact, and let's be clear on why that was the case. So back in 2020, China hit Australia with a with economic punishment that was unprecedented. By the end of the year, we had a dozen Australian export goods that were subject to some form of sanction. The impact of that, basically nothing. Why? First of all, um, China still has its own self-interest. So a lot of the big ticket items, notably iron ore, wool, they were left untouched because China needs them from Australia just as much as Australian producers are interested in China as a market. And the second key point was that Australian producers and exporters are not defenceless. And I think we often forget this. They have access to mitigation mechanisms. The most, there's, there's a few of them, but the most um, significant one was competitive global markets. So, for example, when China cut off coal imports, well, that was a $15 billion export trade. Almost overnight, global, competitive global markets redirected that coal to, to other s- suppliers. So the impact on the Australian economy was essentially zero. That story was rolled out across a whole bunch of different goods, um, copper, cotton, and, and so on. Red wine? Uh, well, red wine is one of the exceptions actually, because it's a very differentiated product. So Mm. it's not as easy just – there's no single competitive global market for red wine because it's very disaggregated Mm. uh, according to the the quality of of different wines. So that was hit harder. James, just as far as New Zealand goes, I mean, there's been a lot of talk over the side of the Tasman about um, New Zealand not putting all its eggs in one basket and needing to diversify its uh, its markets. Is that still true, do you think? Is that still something that we really should be looking at? You should be – Looking at it, but I do think it is important to have a realistic conversation. And actually, I think it's a good thing to talk about diversification. So so the first thing I'd say is... China is not, despite many of the headlines, China is not trigger happy. <laughs> they don't just unleash economic punishment um, for, for, for no reason at all. Now, it, just to be very clear, I'm not justifying what China did to Australia back in 2020 at all, right? I've, I've, I've condemned it. But there was a long lead up to that. And this story out of Canberra, you may have heard this, that all we did was call for an independent international inquiry into COVID-19 and Beijing went berserk, right? That is just a, uh, that's a problem propaganda point from our side. Um, Basically, China formed the view that we were working with the Trump administration to launch a political attack over COVID-19. Now, that assessment may or may not have been correct. But what I, I do think is important to say is if I was sitting in the Chinese embassy in Canberra, it wouldn't be an unreasonable assessment to form. So my first point for New Zealand is I wouldn't get the view that the smallest thing 
you say, is going to set off Chinese economic punishment. The second thing to say is that diversification is not an end in itself. It's a means to an end, and that end is risk management, right? Now, Diversification is fine. Go for it. Uh, but be clear, it is often pushing against economic gravity. Um, as we all know, particularly in the business sector, what drives trade, uh, fundamentally, it's two things. It's complementarity, so they want what you're selling. And purchasing power, they have the uh, ability to pay for, for what you're selling. Mm-hmm. So that that's a reality that all private sector producers understand, um, and that economic gravity is something that you're going to be pushing against when you're attempting to diversify. Now, go for it. It still may be in your interest if risks have risen so significantly, uh, but it's not the only strategy. Um, for, for example, you might consider self-insurance. I often think at universities in Australia, we have a very large exposure to Chinese international student markets. Now, could, that, could there be a geopolitical shock that causes that to take sharp fall? Yes, absolutely. So do we cut off Chinese students preemptively just in case that might happen? No, of course not. We still welcome Chinese international students. But in my view, university management should be quarantining a proportion of that income to essentially self-insure against a future rainy day. One more thing about diversification. There is no straight line running from economic exposure to China to risk. And I think the Australian example has demonstrated that amply over the last few years. We had 40% of our total exports going to China. I'm pretty sure that's about 10 percentage points higher than New Zealand. China launched an unprecedented economic attack on Australia. The effect was basically absolutely nothing at the macroeconomic level. So don't let some alarmist commentators in New Zealand give the view that there's a straight line running from exposure to risk. There's not. Mitigation is a strategy that firms can pursue. As far as the um, the further integration of the Australian and and American mil- military in, in Darwin and, and up in the top end there, what, how do you think that's being viewed in China and what do you think the Australian government is actually planning to do there? I think that Beijing would be interpreted as just the ongoing, um, ever closer ties between Australia and the United States in the military sphere with an eye to containing China's military ambitions, uh, which is what it is. <laughs> so uh, that's, I don't think they would be surprised. Now, will that cause them to then uh, respond, uh, for example, in the economic realm? I doubt it, <laughs> because I think one thing Beijing's learned over the last few years is that economic sanctions often don't have their intended effect on the target and can, in fact, backfire on the country that's putting in place those sanctions. So there'll be a lot of diplomatic grumbling, uh, but I don't imagine there'll be anything much more than that. Do you see a a, a fundamental reset with Albanese coming in? The Albanese government had a chance to turn the page on Morrison and just move forward and try and be a bit more... So there is a fundamental reset in the way we engage with China. So now the Australian government is incredibly disciplined and diplomatic, calm and cautious in its commentary. Um, so that has been a fundamental reset. In the last 18 months of this, the Morrison government, in my view, um, Morrison saw distinct domestic political advantage in weaponising a tense China relationships for his own political fortunes. The Albanese government has absolutely reversed that approach, and there's been some dividends from that. So that's been a fundamental change, uh, but where there has been absolutely no change is in terms of policy. So as you know, we're, we're still seeing, for example, this ongoing integration of the Australian and the American militaries. 
the policy frame, there's going to be no, Huawei is not suddenly going to be allowed into Australia's 5G network. Uh, we're going to keep our foreign interference laws in place. Uh, we're going to stick with the Quad. We're going to stick with AUKUS. Uh, so in the policy realm, uh, that's been characterised by continuity rather than any fundamental change. You know, how public policy can be used in with respect to diversification. I think it's really important that the government um, makes business aware of the geopolitical risks. Mind you, I think most businesses are pretty aware of the geopolitical risks already. After all, it's their money that's on the line. So if the if the door gets shut to the Chinese market, they'll be the one hitting you know hit with the costs, not not the, the national government. But still, the, the, the national government can certainly um, raise risk awareness. They've got access to intelligence assessments, for for example. And I think it's important that the national government does make it clear that if there is some, if Beijing does close the door, then the government won't be stepping in to bail out private sector producers. Right. So that's where I think you can have some sense sensible public policy messaging. But the idea that the government should should force diversification uh, or preemptively cut economic ties, uh, I just think is extremely unproductive and unhelpful. Uh, businesses are used to navigating risk. They do it every day. Let them get on with the job. China is not the only problematic state that New Zealand deals with. And look, might I suggest one other thing that I think is incredibly important when we're talking about those other countries. Um, we are talking about the other superpower as well, the United States. These sanctions that the United States have now put in place are black and white economic containment. We, we can't muck around with this. So what we are seeing in Australia's case, we're seeing our security ally launching a policy of economic containment of our largest trading partner. Right, That is a significant and very serious shift. I think a, there needs to be a vigorous discussion in countries, trade-exposed countries like Australia, like New Zealand, like Southeast Asia, um, about how we respond. It would be very useful if the capitals of all those regions were talking with each other. I think the response will be far more powerful um, if it's a coordinated one. I've been talking to Professor James Lawrenson, Director of the Australia-China Relations Institute at the University of Technology in Sydney. That's Asia Insight. Thanks for listening. Kakite anō.